everyone, Anthony Fantano here, Internet's Busiest Music Nerd, and it is time for another episode of the Needle Drop Podcast, our weekly review roundup podcast where we give you all of our good reviews and thoughts and opinions throughout this past week. In this episode, I'm going to be taking on the latest records from Trippy Red, Action Bronson. Also, Jaden Smith has a new trashy, terrible mixtape out, so I'm going to be throwing some uh, <laughs> negative opinions at that. I'm also talking about the new fantastic Anderson Pack record, Oxnard, and I am going to be tearing apart a little bit the latest Muse release to Simulation Theory, where the alternative rock band goes back to the retro-futuristic 80s pastiche of a few years ago and tries to make a whole album with it. Also, a couple new track reviews from ASAP Rocky and Earl Sweatshirt, and we're also going to have an exclusive little tidbit of our Let's Argue series that is going to be specific to this episode. Uh, so there we go. There we go. That's going to be it for this uh, for this installment of the Needle Drop podcast. Get strapped in, get a snack, do something in the in the background, relax, and here we go. Bam. And it's time for a review of the new Trippy Red mixtape, A Love Letter to You 3. This is the latest mixtape from Ohio native Trippy Red. We just heard from the rapper-singer earlier this year with his full-length commercial debut album, Life's a Trip. It was a bit underwhelming, in my opinion. Not quite the ambitious show-out that I was hoping for, though it was interesting to see Trippy vary up his sound a little bit and successfully embrace the current emo rap trend with lots of compelling songs, with guitar-backed instrumentals. So now he is delivering the, the next installment of this Love Letter mixtape series, which is fine with me because his last mixtape in that series is what attracted me to his music in the first place. And even though my feelings on Trippy's projects up until this point have been somewhat mixed, I gotta say I'm pretty happy I mostly enjoyed this one. Yeah, yeah I did, I mostly enjoyed it. Mostly thought it was pretty enjoyable. There are some real highlights, positives, and improvements for Trippy Red on this project. Out of the current set of auto crooners and trap balladeers out there, I still think Trippy is one of the most standout. He projects a lot of passion and personality through his voice, and he typically foregoes the heavy use of auto-tune that many of his contemporaries are addicted to, resulting in a pretty raw sound that you often don't get out of this style of trap. Now, in the past for Trippy, this has led to songs where his voice is just really going off the rails. He is straining. But on Love Letter 3, I do think Trippy tries to cut down on a lot of the vocal blemishes that were all over his previous projects. Off the bat, I can say the tracks that didn't really appeal to me all that much were the closer Campfire Tale, mostly because it is that rare moment on the album where Trippy's voice is just so over-labored, it gets to the point where it's obnoxious and difficult to listen to. And then there's Diamond Mines featuring Tory Lanez and Elliot Trent, which in my opinion just sounded like a very generic trap R&B blend with very slick, boyish R&B vocals, not a whole lot of personality or flavor to it. It just sounds really pillowy, buttery, and bland. Outside of that, I think the tracks on this thing range from being either decent to pretty great. Whether that be Topanga, the lead track to this thing. I was captivated instantly by the gospel-inspired instrumental on this thing. Also, the pitch-shifted vocal samples on this thing. It ain't over. Also, the sick lead vocal melodies from Trippy on this one. My ticker little to Topanga. 
The messaging in the lyrics, while it didn't really resonate with me all that much at first, after repeated listens, it strikes me as this really weird combination of romance and violent paranoia that, uh, again, I'm not exactly sure if the message comes through all that clear. It, it is pretty odd to feel these combating feelings on one song. The song Toxic Waste is an oddly sad and vulnerable moment for Trippy, with its sad little acoustic guitar samples and its gentle but busy beat. But what truly sells this song, in my opinion, is the vocal performance. With Trippy asking this person who he has in mind to help him, even though he knows that that person entering back into his life is not healthy. It's basically portraying this addiction that he has to a very toxic and, and negative relationship, I guess. Meanwhile, on the song Can't Love, Trippy sounds even more heartbroken, literally crying out over a very simple beat in this sad electric guitar lick saying, she said she loves me. I think she loved me now. How could you do this to me? If you're looking for an impassioned, heart-wrenching trap ballad, this is it. And this is just one of many moments on this record where it feels like Trippy is just deeply obsessing over getting the raw emotional deal out of these failed relationships. Which, again, fits as a weird combination against other tracks or even lyrics within these songs where he's just singing about letting Choppa's bang. In a way, this record successfully inhabits this new wave of trap where you have these tough guys that just wear their hearts on their sleeve, I guess. The lines between those two worlds continue to blur on the title track of this thing, too, where Trippy delivers this melodic, righteous, angry diatribe about being tested. And I think a lot of this track's emotion and ethos can get boiled down into a single line that he repeats a few times. I put my soul into these cups. I don't worry about anything. To me, this line and many others just totally embodies the addiction, the anger, and the heartbreak that he dives into on one track after another on this record. Also thought the track Loyalty before Royalty was pretty great as well, one of the slightly better topical tracks on this thing where Trippy is going on about brotherhood in the midst of this life of sin that he's surrounded by. My major issue with this record and Trippy's sound and style at this very point in time, though, is that the songwriting and the instrumentals can be a little one-dimensional because there are tracks on this thing where the beat just does not change up all that much across the length of the song. Not a whole lot of melody or chord changes, not a lot of percussive shifts or beat dropouts, which might seem like a simple request, might seem like something very basic, but it does make a world of difference in terms of encapsulating certain parts of the song or highlighting certain parts of a song. I mean, sometimes Trippy's vocal melody, his flow doesn't even change up all that much from a verse to a chorus on a track. And it just leads to a handful of songs on this thing just sounding very samey from front to back. Whether it be Wicked or or Negative Energy, or Firestarter, just to name a few. And listen, this is even the case for some tracks on this thing that I like, but sometimes what ends up happening is that Trippy's vocal performance on a track is so good that I just can't deny it. There are also a handful of cuts on this thing where a guest rapper or singer is just enough to kind of break up the monotony of a song, whether that be Baby Goth on the title track to this thing, or Juice World on 1400, the chemistry between him and Trippy Red on this cut is actually excellent. Both of them kind of drive each other to keep the energy high. And honestly, Elevate and Motivate has one of the slickest and most enjoyable guest verses I've ever heard from Young Boy Never Broke Again. So while I do like the bulk of the tracks on this record, I like the direction of this album. This, in my opinion, is one of Trippy's most consistent projects yet. I do still think there's room for improvement. And what I would love to hear more going forward are more focused and varied songs. I really feel like that's the next way for Trippy to bring things 
things to the next level. Because so far on this thing, he has captured a really great sound. He's got a distinct voice on this record, a sixth sense for catchy flows and melodies. I just think the substance and structure of what he's doing could be a bit better. I'm feeling a strong six to a light seven on this thing. Transition into the next review. <sighs> And it's time for a review of the new Action Bronson record, White Bronco. TV host, foodie, actor, he's gonna be in an upcoming Scorsese film, and rapper, Action Bronson, from Queens, New York. He's back, and he has a lot of irons in the fire. And despite the fact that he does have one of the biggest and most charismatic personalities in hip-hop right now, this new brief album of his makes me wonder how much a priority that is for him at the moment. Sure, Bronson's trademark boasts and sense of humor are laced throughout the 11 tracks and 26 minutes of this thing, but the songs on this record feel more sketchy than they do fully realized. For the most part, this record doesn't really offer much in terms of a hook or structure or a coherent idea, shift in style or evolution, theme. It mostly just feels like riffing over some really basic loops until the track is padded out for a minute or two and then it's either faded out or segued with a sample or something. Frankly, it feels kind of low effort for Bronson. Granted, Bronson's recent material hasn't really been his best or his most consistent, Blue Chip 7000, Mr. Wonderful, but at least those albums felt a little bit more fully conceived, and even though there were some ill-conceived lows, those records still had some pretty exciting highs. On White Bronco, Bronson isn't really packing these tracks with his best work, with his worst work, really with much of anything. I mean, the title track, it's not exactly a long cut. It takes around a minute for Bronson to actually start rapping with these really jazzy electric piano chords taking a long time to set the tone. And there's an incredibly strung out outro to the track too, with a really rambly refrain about Bronson living his best life, which I mean, maybe he is because it does not sound like he's straining at all to make this. Throughout this entire track, there was only one line that stood out to me, the, uh, I'm like a father to these bastards, shut the fuck up, eat your pudding. 20 alligators died for this shit I put my foot in. Which, as a vegan, the line breaks my heart, but it's friggin' funny. But this album needs a lot more than Bronson just being humorous in order for it to make it a great LP that I want to return to. It's like just a bunch of random freestyles over samples that kind of throw it back to the days of classic funk and soul with a bit of jazz fusion mixed in here and there and some familiar faces on the production too like Knowledge and Party Supplies and La Musica de Harry Fraud who puts Bronson and ASAP Rocky over a cloud rap cut on the very tail end of the record. A song that I didn't really care for at first but it's kind of grown on me in the context of this album, maybe because in a weird way it's one of the more fleshed out and satisfying songs on the entire record, doesn't sound as unfinished as a lot of the other material here, and it's pretty rare that you hear Bronson over this style of beat. And while I do like the musical aesthetic and flavor of the instrumentals on this record, they're not the most detailed or varied beats that I've ever heard Bronson on. For the most part, it feels like a diminished version of what we've heard already in his back catalog on mixtapes like Rare Chandeliers, uh, stuff earlier than that, or again, even that more recent material I mentioned earlier, but noting more of the high points of those records. Granted, there is something kind of left field and raw about the performances and the instrumentals on this thing. The random horse neighing samples, the colorful loops, the bold 
persona and really out there ad-libs. Machine Gun Money! This album almost vibes like mad villainy at a few points. So if Bronson was shooting for something that's a bit more loose, a bit more abstract, I can kind of respect that, but the thing is, this album is so lacking if it was going to be anywhere in that league of quality. Because the instrumentals, for the most part, are kind of plain. They're pretty straightforward. They're not really all that wavy or texturally interesting. And sure, there are a few funny quotables on most of the tracks here, but it's not like the flows or the reference points or the wordplay are all that abstract or layered or intriguing. Mostly I'm feeling really on the fence with this record. I've heard Bronson put out worse tracks in the past, but I partially feel like the material on this record is so agreeable because he doesn't really string these songs out into anything. He doesn't really take any risks. He doesn't really try to do anything different. He plays it so safe and predictable that you can't really do anything other than just kind of like tap your foot to it and maybe giggle at a few lines that he says. Grab a record like Mr. Wonderful, take all the best tracks out of that, compile it into an EP, and you've already got a project that's at least two times better than this. I'm feeling a light to decent five on this thing. Transition into the next review. And it is time for a review of the new Jaden Smith mixtape, The Sunset Tapes, A Cool Tape Story. Jaden Smith is an actor, a musician, a rapper, a tastemaker, an influencer. For a while, he's been looking for an in into the music industry, dropping some loose material and mixtapes here and there, but I don't think his his dreams of actually hitting it big in music would come to fruition until his big commercial album debut, Sire, last year. And despite the fact that this album resonated with so many people, it just didn't really sit with me right. The best thing I could say this album has going for it is that it had some very great, expensive sounding production on it. Lyrically, this record fell really short. Jaden was not only repeating lines on this thing, but he didn't really seem to have that deep of a mastery of the English language like some of the greats in the genre. And not to say Jane's music automatically isn't good just because it doesn't live up to the work of someone like Kanye West, but the thing is Jaden himself makes that comparison in his own music. Sire gave me the impression not only through his lyrics but also through the reference points in his songs and in his flows that he thinks this album is on the level of the fantastic artist he's so obviously copying to make it. And that's another thing, Sire, for as long as it is, it's, it's pretty short on original ideas. Even though Sire made a relatively big splash and Jaden had all the resources in the world to make it, he still sounded like a super inexperienced artist who is yet to discover his own sound and path. Not to mention that the songwriting on this thing left a lot to be desired too. So as hard as I was on this album, maybe part of me felt like it could have rubbed me the wrong way that day. Maybe uh, Jaden is still a young artist who's finding his footing. I mean, who knows? Maybe a year from now with consistent effort and Jaden's endless resources, he will improve tenfold as a rapper and a songwriter, which is what I was hoping for on this new Sunset Tapes project, which is relatively short, 11 tracks, just 37 minutes. This project is everything I disliked about Sire, but worse. The songs on this record are even more unoriginal than they were on Sire. The songs are actually even less coherent than they were on Sire. I could at least say in Sire's defense that 
Jaden would go after some pretty distinct musical styles on that record, even if some of them were long-winded or the song at the core of it was ill-conceived. He was bringing a decent amount of variety. He was taking some interesting risks with grand epic instrumentals and some acoustic cuts. This, however, just sounds like Jaden generically rapping and auto-crooning over the most generic production that he could get his hands on. All of which is badly mixed, by the way. The mixes on this record suck. They're muddy. They're bland, they're gray, they're colorless. There are some songs on this thing where it sounds like I'm listening to Jaden rap or sing on the other side of a thin piece of drywall. What's even more amazing about that is is that uh, Jaden didn't even produce this entire record. So, I mean, the thing is, this sounds like very amateurish, it sounds like very DIY and homegrown, but the fact that he had so many other, uh, like, artists in the creative process on this, and it still came out this muddy and bland sounding is beyond me. Right from the start of this thing, Jaden is sounding more uninspired than usual. The song Soho mostly just sounds like a very spacey Diamond Doesn't Trap beat with Jaden just kind of crooning over it. On the lyrical front, there's not really much to speak of. Uh, not even two minutes into the track, we start getting bars about how his flows are cold and the mic is frozen. The track essentially sounds like glamorous space trap with some really pretty pianos and not much in the way of a song. It's like if somebody tried to write the blandest, most forgettable combination of influences from Ray Sremmerd and Brockhampton. The Calabasas freestyle, even though it is shorter, it has a bit more meat on the bone because the, the beat is more tangible, Jaden's vocals are not mired in auto-tune, he actually brings some flows and some bars, though there are some weird ones on here, like rap is one of my fetishes, like a dragon that's pregnant. Is Jaden a furry? Whichever way you interpret it for Jaden, it's not looking good. Again, even though I do like the meteor beat and the consistent flows on this track, as far as just voice and personality and style, I still at this point cannot pick Jaden out of a lineup. He is generic as hell. I could at least say that on Sire, there were some rap tracks on there that had a bit more oomph and energy. He exploded on the mic, even if, again, he, he didn't have the most distinct personality. It seemed like he was putting all of his heart into it. Uh, Calabasas Freestyle, by comparison, sounds like he is asleep at the wheel. Play This on a Mountain at Sunset, I guess, does kind of capture that vibe a little bit. It's uh, kind of ambient. It's very easygoing. The track essentially sounds like if somebody tried to turn auto croons into elevator music. If that interests you, give it a try, but Honestly, I don't even really think this track achieves what a track might need to in order to be pretty in the background or ambient. As Jaden's auto-tuned vocal riffing, it's not very pleasant. Mountains, fountains, mountains. mountains. And once more, I could at least respect numerous tracks off of Sire for having a coherent song at the baseline of the track. This, once again, while I guess he's going for a track that's ambient in nature, it just kind of seems like he's dicking around. Plastic is another banger on this record with a terrible mix. Sounds almost like Jaden is trying to capture the spirit of a little pump or a bad baby. Hard-hitting instrumental, pretty generic flow. Once again, Jaden doesn't really come through with that distinct of a sound or personality. Super short track as well, so not much to it. The song Distant is another emotional cut on this thing. Jaden really tries to flex his poetic license on this one. Singing about looking at butterflies in the sky and the stars waiting for the sunrise, which, how could that even be the case? 
butterflies are not nocturnal. How are you seeing butterflies and the stars at the same time? This song also features these really weird pitch-shifted vocals, which once again puts him in the lane of uh, like a dollar store brand Brockhampton. And it's one of the longest tracks on the record, unnecessarily long. I mean, three minutes in, this thing is already excruciating, and it just gets progressively worse and worse and worse as Jaden fails to come through with a compelling set of chords, a compelling vocal melody, interesting lyrics, really anything. Finally, there's a set of like these auto-tuned, multi-tracked vocals that sound like they're ripped right out of the Kanye West playbook. And I'm not even talking about just like a mild similarity here. Jaden is just ripping off Kanye West as hard as he possibly can, right down to matching these multi-tracked vocals up with some bad spoken word. I mean, it was one thing when Jaden was clearly wearing his influences on his sleeve, but now it's like he's just unashamedly copying them without any real care for how it looks. The song Yeah Yeah is a sort of unexpected summer jam. The groove has a bit of a, a tropical vibe to it, but the production is super wavy and glossy. It's almost like I'm listening to a combination of Vaporwave and Dancehall. Vaporhall. But then once the vocal melody pops in, it's a straight Drake ripoff. Jaden is literally just trying to write a bad Drake song. And believe me, this track does not really get any better once you start diving into the lyrics with Jaden singing about, you know, thinking about wanting to see this girl naked. We get this hard transition into this weird vocal interlude, Sire in Abbey Road, which sounds like a nightmare. It just sounds like a nightmare. It's like if you had Bon Iver, James Blake, and Laurie Anderson, all with auto-tune on their voices, try to sing in harmony, but they couldn't hear each other. Meanwhile, on the song 1010, Jaden doesn't even sound awake for his own track. It's almost like he's sipped three bottles worth of cough syrup, and then he just like hit record on the mic, and this is what came out. The song is so vapid, effortless, and so devoid of, of any effort at all, it seriously makes me rethink my Gunna and Lil Baby Not Good. This is a track that seriously makes me worry about the society that we live in. Because a society that <laughs> puts a track like this out, it must be broken. The first leg of Fallen Part 2 actually doesn't sound all that bad. Some really spacey tones, uh, some post-rock-ish guitars kind of floating and fluttering in the atmosphere. Jaden crooning his way through the track with a relative amount of somber emotion in his, in his voice. It sounds both pretty and dreary, but then that portion of the track melts away in place of this little spoken word passage where he sounds super, super serious, very deadpan, very uh, stern in a way and it's it's almost like I'm listening to politics rap. It's, it's some serious politics bars, which is honestly just too much for my little heart to take, especially toward the end of the album, which again, it's not even that long of a record, and I feel like I've just been locked into it like a, a, a hell maze that I can't get out of. Meanwhile, the closing track, Rolling Around, is one of the worst cliffhangers imaginable. It just ends abruptly out of nowhere, I guess in the spirit of the rest of the album, just feeling very uh, half-baked, unfinished, uh, low effort, like he just wasn't really trying. And that's honestly the worst thing about this tape. It just does not feel like Jaden is trying 
at all. He's not trying to conceive of an original or an interesting idea. He just borrows ideas from other artists, and he doesn't even borrow the good ones, and when he does, he manages to mess it up. I just feel like this project is the last thing that Jaden needed at this point in his career. Sure, while Sire was a large record, it did well, it was a pretty big undertaking, Jaden is still at a point in his career where he has something to prove. You are not in the position yet where you can just come out with a project where you're just literally killing time and playing musical dress-up for 37 minutes. And because coming out with a great record is not a do-or-die situation for Jaden, the results sound like it just doesn't matter. If this record does well, for Jaden, it doesn't matter. If it doesn't do well, for Jaden, it doesn't matter. Either way, he'll continue to be well off and have the resources he needs to shove his music in front of everyone's face in the music industry. This was so boring, sleepy, bland, and uninspired, I'm just not really sure I have anything else to say about it. I'm feeling a light to decent two on this thing. It really is that lacking in terms of anything exciting, honestly. Before we get into our next review, I want to give a shout out to the good people over at the Ridge Wallet. They make these nifty, awesome, metal-plated, convenient, compact wallets that fit right in your front pocket, hit up ridgewallet.com slash Fantano. That is ridgewallet.com slash Fantano and use promo code Fantano for 10% off your order. Get rid of that bulky, disgusting leather wallet, please. Get a nice, slick, clean replacement, ridgewallet.com slash Fantano. And it's time for a review of the new Anderson Pack album, Oxnard. This is the latest full-length LP from California All-Arounder, Anderson Pack. He's a writer, producer, singer, multi-instrumentalist, rapper, astronaut. It did take a while for Anderson Pack to get where he is currently at, but uh, it's it's hard to imagine living in a world where th this man would not eventually get famous. He's just so versatile as the sounds of pop and jazz rap Funk, soul, R&B, a bit of psych, have all flowed through Anderson's music in the past at some point. Also, he has been releasing some very enjoyable albums as of late, his 2016 underground hit, Malibu, and the same year breakout collaborative record that he dropped with Knowledge under the No Worries name. He even received quite a bit of mic time on Dr. Dre's Compton record a few years ago, too. And now that connection with The Good Doctor is finally paying off as this record is coming out on Dre's Aftermath label. Dre is also executive producing on this thing and regular producing on this thing. Other names on production on this record, Ninth Wonder, Dem Joints, Focus. But honestly, the production list on this thing is not as star-studded as one might assume given the major label push behind this record. And frankly, that's something I am happy about. It would absolutely crush my soul to see Anderson Pack put out a new record where he's just rapping and singing over a bunch of generic trap beats. Plus, the production palette of this record allows him to continue on his own artistic trajectory, embracing the funky West Coast sounds that have inspired him so, which have most likely been emphasized under the tutelage of Dr. Dre, too. And even though this has been at the slight sacrifice of the wider array of genres on Anderson Pack's last record, one of my main issues with that album is that it wasn't really all that focused in terms of sound and songwriting. Oxnard, by comparison, is a record with a stronger sense of direction. It knows where it wants to go. It knows where it wants to be. It's literally named after a place, though I guess Malibu was, too. 
so whatever. Even in this slightly more limited state, Anderson Pack does bring the audience on this record a, a pretty nice variety of sounds, ranging from G-Funk and Neo-Soul and Jazz Rap, some futuristic bangers on this thing like Who Are You, as well as Mansa Musa, which sound like the next logical artistic step past artists like Pharrell or uh, Schoolboy Q on Oxymoron. The tone of the tracks on this record range too, like on the opening track, The Chase, whose instrumental literally sounds like the chase scene out of a 70s exploitation film. Or the song Brothers Keeper, which also captures the sound of a similar era, exploding with these cinematic drums and guitars, organs, and epic background vocals. Pusha T totally kills it on his verse, backing up the sentiment, the theme of the song, and talking about his brother, talking about clips, talking about how he can't quite get away from his usual subject matter, rapping about the you know. Then there are some moments on this where Anderson, in his typical Anderson Pack fashion, is delivering some fun, sensual, flirty, sexy tracks. The man is a charisma magnet. There are some poppier, slicker, showier cuts on this thing too, like Tints featuring Kendrick Lamar, who ties up the back end of that track very well. Other features on this thing are equally pleasurable, like Snoop Dogg, his Rapping on this thing sounds totally natural, effortless, like he was made for the instrumental that he's on, or vice versa, as he references that the sound of the beat reminds him of the G-Funk era that he came out of. Dre on this thing is a little less rigid, sounds like he's having a bit more fun than he was on his Compton project when he appeared on that. J. Cole's appearance on this thing is slightly corny, though I'm not exactly sure what I was expecting, as he is rapping about kind of creeping over the internet on an old flame, hoping she pops up on Facebook. Though I do give him credit for feeding into the song's theme of coming together and longing for someone. I also like the eerie and psychedelic neo-soul direction that the instrumental goes into. BJ, the Chicago kid, sweetens up a kind of bitter and funny song about a series of ex-girlfriends that Anderson has had over the years, painting each of them as like a kooky character of themselves. Gotta say, this is the first time I think I've ever heard a rapper brag on a song about dating a gamer girl who likes anime and wants to go to Comic-Con. Gamers, rise up! Anderson and his collaborators on this thing also fit in a few multifaceted tracks that feature a creative beat or musical shift, like the song Six Summers, which kicks off with this really herky-jerky funk bassline and these loose group claps. The track sounds incredibly old school, incredibly vintage. Lyrically, Anderson is making these wild proclamations about Trump having a love child and she's growing up to drink and party and make out with women, which it's pretty funny, but it's it's not, a, a, I guess, a piece of commentary that lands with all that much significance. I like the song's transition into this really somber neo-soul rap blend in which Anderson hits this refrain about drinking and smoking just to cope with the pain. If Anderson was going to inject some kind of social commentary into his stuff, I think he he could have done better, could have scratched a bit deeper below the surface. But I do think he captured the emotion really well of the, the boom of frustration with the current state of things and then the bust of futility and depression once you've realized that you can't change it. At least not by yourself anyway. Smile and Petty is also a nice two-parter. The first leg of the song essentially is about Anderson being mistreated very, very badly in a relationship over a very funky and interesting bass line that is incredibly deep. Gets all the way down to that fifth string. Meanwhile, the second half of the track is essentially Anderson's less than mature <laughs> response to 
all of that. There's a pretty funky closing track on this thing. I love the instrumental. I like Anderson's energy on the song, though he pretty much lays the track out in this fake patois. I'm not exactly sure why he goes fake with the Jamaican accent in the final moments of the record, though I guess I could say he doesn't sound as dorky doing it as some other rappers do. It's kind of a weird way to end the record off, but uh, it's still a pretty solid collection of tracks. I would actually say it's his best project so far in terms of production and songwriting, performance, as well as something I think his two previous projects were lacking, and that's focus. But as much as I enjoy this album, I do think there is room for improvement here. A few cuts on this thing were kind of underwhelming, like the track Savior's Road, which doesn't have nearly as much structure as a lot of other tracks on this thing do. And there are maybe a few tracks on this thing where Anderson's juvenile lyrics get in the way of the enjoyability of this album. And not to say that I think this record lyrically is worse off than any number of pop or trap rap albums out there. It's just that, uh, in a way, the production, the presentation, and some of the reference points for Anderson in the record insinuate that the subject matter and the substance of this album is a bit deeper than it actually is, so it kind of pulls you in the direction of expecting to hear something that you're not going to. And personally, maturity and social commentary is not necessarily something I go into an Anderson Pack album searching for. He just has a very electrifying and upbeat personality that pours through in his music. And I'm not really sure if I need much else, though I would totally welcome him diving a bit deeper topically as long as he, you know, actually put in the homework. As is, though, I think this album still stands as a pretty nice breath of fresh air in the current state of pop rap and uh, Neo Soul. And it's encouraging to hear Anderson continue to grow into his very versatile sound with another quality record. I'm feeling a light eight on this thing. Tran 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 transition into the next review. And it's time for a review of the new Muse album, Simulation Theory. This is the latest full-length album, the eighth full-length album from UK alternative rock outfit Muse, whose new album over here has been being built up uh, as if it's it's more than just an album, like, almost like it's a movie. For Muse, the movie Tron and the subsequent reboot were just not enough. They had to come out with their own, like, 80s retro-futurist synth-odyssey prog-pop opus to, you know, call their own. And I did enjoy a few of the songs and music videos leading up to the release of this album. I thought that going in more of a synthwave direction might be a good thing for Muse? I mean, it certainly had to be more refreshing than what they were doing on the second law, incorporating elements of trashy mainstream electronic music and EDM and even dubstep into their repertoire, as well as what they were doing after that on Drones, a militaristic anti-war pop rock album that was really just too annoying for words. Look, I've been so disappointed by so many new Muse albums at this point, I'm, I'm just not really sure if I'm capable of having high expectations for Muse right now. Even if, again, I find the conceptual direction they're going in with this album to be mildly intriguing. Because for sure, this could have been an album where essentially Muse take their usual style of overblown, over-delivered symphonic pop rock and just sort of throw some synthwave synths on it. And certainly there are points on this album that feel like that, such as the song Algorithm, the opening cut where you have a really rigid 
flat, boring, redundant beat, just kind of plodding away underneath these building vocal strings and synths. It's a nice tone setter. It has a big sound. It has an epic feel, but not much in terms of a payoff. And the closing track, too, which is a pretty underwhelming finish to the record. It's titled The Void and certainly feels like it leaves a void at the end of the record. Points of the song just feel like an endless intro, with Matt Bellamy calling out passionately over these piano passages. Eventually, dubstep wubs start introducing themselves underneath the classically inspired instrumentation. It's kind of like for Muse, those awful dubstep-isms from the second law are just unfinished business. They haven't perfected them yet, so they have to keep forcing them into their music just to prove a point or just like really nail it this time. There's even a point at the very end of this track where the piano chords resolve in like a very traditional way and the dubstep wub sort of resonate with that key that the chords fall in and finish off with. It's just like, wow, some, some real classical wubs right here. So there are some points on this album where it feels like I'm just listening to a typical Muse song, but with some retro gimmicky 80 synthesizers thrown in. The track The Dark Side also makes me wonder whether or not the band has even really mastered this style to the point where they should be releasing an album in it. Because the bass, the drums, the busy and crunchy synthesizer sequences, the way it all comes together, it's really messy not a whole lot translates outside of Matt Bellamy's lead vocals soaring out on top of all of it and some really bold and loud drum fills kind of segueing one part of the track to the next. Honestly, the track just makes me feel like I should be listening to Daft Punk's Human After All instead, and that's not even their best album. There are a line of tracks, one after the next on this record though, that I think are pretty good, where the band manages to perform and write some compelling songs, deliver some creative instrumental palettes, and distance themselves a little bit from the very cliched and predictable 80s retro future synth the blah, 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 whatever they're trying to do on this album. I'm talking about tracks like Pressure, a track that really rocks with dusty, grimy guitar tones that feel like they're lifted straight out of a Queens of the Stone Age record. The verses of the track are pretty mean and low down, but the chorus explodes into something much prettier and more refined, featuring these very snappy and regal background vocal melodies. Don't push me! One of many points on this record that seem almost like Queen-inspired. Meanwhile, the track Propaganda not only features one of the weirdest intros on the entire record, but the sexy groove and slick guitar licks and Matt Bellamy's vocals as soon as the track really gets going reads like something out of a Prince song. In fact, it feels like the band are overtly referencing the same Prince song Janelle Monet was on Make Me Feel, Kiss. And I love Matt Bellamy here attempting to write lyrics that are simultaneously trying to point out some kind of social ills, but also give a message of, I, I guess, uh, attraction or sensuality. Cool chick, you ate my soul just like a death eater. I'm the ocean, you're an oil slick. Now I'm choking on your thought pollution. Basically portraying propaganda is something that's like, ooh, attractive, you can't turn your eyes from it, which I mean, I guess is true. It's exactly how the whole process of propaganda works, but likening that to sexual attraction is uh, one thing on this record that I could give it a point for, whoa, that's actually kind of creative. And to add to the everything but the kitchen sink creativity of this track, there's also like an instrumental passage that features some really slick, bluesy slide guitars and rattling trap hi-hats, and it actually goes over pretty well. The song Break It To Me is just as varied in its influence as well. I'm catching whiffs of new metal on here, a little Faith No More. I would say some Primus too, and it seems like there's a conscious effort to work like some Middle Eastern folk music melodies in here too. This is one of many spots on this record where the band sound, the songs, the instrumental palette, it's overwhelming, but I can at least commend them on here for making it all come together 
coherently, separating all of it, giving th this song many distinct passages, as opposed to having it all just sound like an incoherent mess. And that's the thing with simulation theory. Much of the time it feels like the band are, are working with a lot of ideas, a lot of competing influences kind of fighting for attention on this thing. And sometimes they organize these ideas effectively, and sometimes not so much. Because even without all of these insane influences and sounds flying back and forth, Break It To Me at its core is a pretty catchy pop rock track. It's only an added bonus that there are some weird, quirky instrumental bits on here that sound like Julian Casablancas's The Voids. On top of it, there's like this stuttering, funky, hip-hop-inspired guitar solo at one point on the track that sounds almost like something Tom Morello would do. The song Something Human is another enjoyable track for me on this record, but it is a much-needed cool-down point on this album where Matt Bellamy and company just try to deliver a ballad to counteract a lot of those hard and very <laughs> weird and, and varied songs they have presented up until this point. And this is another spot on the record where the band are essentially likening human touch and interaction and action to that of a robot or just technology in general, saying things like, my circuits have blown, I know it's self-imposed, and all I have shared and all I have loved is all I'll ever own. But something has changed, I feel so alive, my life just blew up, I'd give it all up, I'll depressurize. The lyrics on this thing, granted, they're a little corny, but there's something kind of cute and endearing about them that I can't deny. And I love how the band are mostly able to reconcile these over-the-top, pristine, super emotional indie folk sounds with uh, these retro synths. However, it's after this point that I think simulation theory really starts taking kind of a nosedive. The song Thought Contagion, while it is one of my favorite lyrical topics and themes on the entire record, record likening bad or toxic or terrible ideas to that of like a disease spreading like someone's bitten you and then you've caught their really crappy worldview. There are some lyrics on this thing that do hit me as legitimately cringy, and given that it is Muse, they can't help but try to take whatever terrible, awful, trendy mainstream music ideas are floating out there in the ether, grab it for themselves, and try to make it work within their own musical world. In the case of this song, it's these really awful, over-the-top millennial, whoa, whoa, woes. And I guess I give the band props for applying those whoa, woes in more of a epic and, and dark fashion than a faux inspirational sense, but it still doesn't change that it's a really tired and unnecessary sound at this point on the album. The hook on the song Get Up and Fight is so friggin' oversold. Get up and fight! It's, it's really, a. Uh... It's a bit much. The band's essentially trying to make the worst arena rock anthem they can conjure at this point on the record. The track almost sounds like Andrew W.K., but without the Andrew W.K. Matt Bellamy's vocals just freaking out at this point on the album is kind of like the equivalent of Tommy Wiseau going, Lisa, you're tearing me apart! Ah! Then comes what's easily one of my least favorite tracks on the entire record, Blockades, where the band starts going back to those retro-futurist synth sounds that were more prevalent on the first leg of the record. The way the groove and the synth sequences come together on on this track, it feels like they're pulling straight out of the Giorgio playbook. Meanwhile, some of the lyrics on this thing are just downright confusing. I do, however, end up liking some of the symphonic rock elements that pop up in the song later in its progression. Smash! Test! Be! Best! I've said it before and I'll say it once more, I am not as big of a detractor when it comes to Muse records like The Resistance. I actually enjoy that record quite a bit, and maybe it has something to do with me not like necessarily growing up listening to Muse, so when I went back to listen to their 
older records as well as the resistance that album didn't really have the opportunity to disappoint me because i wasn't like kind of basing my whole conception of the band off of listening to all of their older material up to that point in 2009. So while, yeah, I do acknowledge that The Resistance is a very different record for Muse in context of their earlier discography, I don't know, I still think it's a pretty fun album. It's like a symphonic pop rock record for people who spent too much time in online political forums. And in that respect, I, I don't know, I, I think the record is, is pretty enjoyable. What's unfortunate though is, is it seems like Muse keeps trying to write that album album over and over and over again, but with just a different instrumental style, concept, aesthetic, or gimmick, whether it be Second Law, whether it be Drones, or whether it be this album over here. But what I can give Muse on simulation theory is that I think this is the best attempt at trying to incorporate a different sound into their usual repertoire up until this point. The band's foray into this sound could have been way more inaccurate and out of touch than it actually is. Honestly, when this album is at its worst is when the band is trying to go back and re-litigate ideas and sounds that already didn't work well on their past couple of records. The song Dig Down is not one of the worst tunes on the entire record, and I think some of the gospel-inspired background vocals are pretty cool, but once again the band seems intent on forcing these dubstep-style wub-wubs into the aesthetic of the track as if, one, anybody even wants to hear this type of sound anymore, and two, as if it's even complimentary. It's not. So overall, my feelings on this record, they're relatively mixed. There's some real high points, some real points of creativity on this thing, some tracks that frankly I just wouldn't have ever expected. Expected to be so good, but also expected to contain the types of sounds and influences that they do. And I guess also expected to hear those very sounds and influences come together so well. But then there are songs on here where the retro futurist 80s synthesizers, I know I've said that a million times up until this point, but still, there are points where those are brought into the fold not all that creatively, it's kind of uninspired. And of course, there's a good handful of tracks on this thing that are downright ill-conceived. Still though, I think I can say Simulation Theory is one of the better records Muse has dropped in a while, certainly better than their last few, even if it doesn't necessarily live up to the quality of a lot of the band's earlier work. I'm feeling a strong five to a light six on this thing. Before we get into the next review, I want to shout out the good people over at turntablelab.com. Holiday season is coming up, everyone. If you are an audiophile, you're a record collector, you know somebody who wants to get into that scene, they need a turntable, they need some records, they need a, a media tower to put all that stuff in, turntablelab.com is where you want to go. And if you hit up turntablelab.com slash the needle drop, you can get colorful pressings of records we have reviewed on the channel, audio equipment, gear, and more, and we get kickback from it. Helps out the channel, helps out the podcast, helps out the reviews. Again, holiday season coming up. You're going to need some presents for yourself or for someone who you love who is also into music as much as you. TurntableLab.com slash The Needle Drop. Hey, buddy, did you hear the news? It's track reviews. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Brand new song just dropped from ASAP Rocky. It has been said to sample some Tame Impala, so there are a lot of uh, headlines and, and hype over that. And uh, on the production for this new track over here is Rocky himself, Sixth Sense, and also Danger Mouse. Danger Mouse is landing on the production of this thing. Uh, one more person, Hector Delgado. 
So uh, looks like a lot of production credits on this thing. Two minutes and 38 seconds. That Tame Impala sample, I'm sure, is going to be trippy, luscious, and delicious. Let's see how it all plays into this brand new track. As you guys might remember, Rocky's last full-length album, Testing. Uh, there were a lot of... Uh, somewhat forward-thinking and abstract ideas on some parts of that project, but I don't really think Rocky's songs and lyrics and vocals were enough to carry a lot of it. Uh, I did admire, I guess, some of the risks that he took on that record, but at the core, I didn't really find a lot of the songs to be all that compelling. Uh, really, I would love to hear Rocky get back to dropping some tracks that are actually memorable, actually worth repeating, actually get stuck in your head because, hey, you know, while, for example, not one of his most experimental records, uh, I mean, probably his least experimental record because it's his most radio friendly, but still it's easily one of his most enjoyable. I mean, I don't really know if I need Rocky to go super experimental to come out with a compelling record. Let's get into this new track over here, Sundress. Let's see what it's doing. Let's see what's going on. And, uh, bam <laughs> That was kind of surprising. That, that was that was interesting, I guess. All right, let's, uh, I guess, filter through what exactly is going on in this track. So that Tame Impala sample that everybody's been talking about, Rocky hits you with it right at the start of the song. And it's certainly not surprising that Danger Mouse had a hand in the production on this thing because there is a bit of a vintage flair to it too. The drum beat and the keyboards on this thing sound totally in that Danger Mouse and also Tame Impala wheelhouse. On top of it, ASAP Rocky is singing in uh, this very, I guess, somewhat sweet, somewhat sassy falsetto. I guess you fell into the wrong hands. And now you're effing with the wrong man. It's got a bit of a, uh, like an old school girl group quality to it. Uh, I guess the singing is a bit goofy as it was uh, when Rocky would try to sing lead on a lot of tracks from his last full length album. But at least in this occasion, I can kind of see what he was going for. And the vocals mostly kind of fit the vibe of the tune. So I can't really knock it all that hard. It's a cute little endearing vocal bit. So you have this intro which essentially serves as the start of the song and also the chorus. Then we segue quickly into this little rap verse that Rocky has where he kind of goes a little bit deeper topically into what the chorus is alluding to, and that's that this girl that he has in mind, he had a relationship with her, he's not with her anymore, he remembers uh, the times that he had with her and so on and so forth, and now all of that's gone and it's all you know, being flushed down the toilet. And then we head right back into that chorus and then it just fades out. It's barely a structure. It's, it's barely a song. It's just more like a motif or a vague idea of something. It's kind of disappointing to see just um, how many artists really aren't building their tracks out all that far these days and aren't really teasing the ideas that they have for songs out that far. And they're just kind of like handing you two hook, uh, two hooks, barely a verse, and then dipping out and it's over. 
And I mean, I guess the song kind of captures a vibe. It has a sweet aesthetic to it. But again, I'll say it's 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 not much of a song. It's uh, very scant. I would say it's it's kind of emaciated. Uh, it could have done with maybe a bridge or I don't know, another instrumental shift or something. You know, there's it, it not really all that much to it. Um, and I'm not exactly sure what to say about this track beyond that. I do think the sample was incorporated interestingly. Rocky does kind of capture a musical vibe, a musical era, uh, successfully despite his usual vocal limitations. The lyrics, they do focus on a topic, but they are pretty vague and basic and don't really get that greatly into detail into what exactly he's going on and on about. So, you know, I mean, I'm sure people will be able to relate to it given that it's it's not very specific, but still, there's not a whole lot to sink your teeth into in terms of uh, the lyrical front on this thing. Um, and uh, I mean, it's a pretty straightforward and short two minutes and 30 seconds or so, uh, and just kind of leaves almost as quickly as it came. I mean, I can appreciate, you know, dropping a song of this this structure this brevity if the chorus is absolute fire or the beat hits so hard that it leaves an immense impression on you uh or you know maybe this track who knows will be laced into a forthcoming record in such a way where it segues into the other tracks and maybe it all comes together uh effectively but as of right now as a single i'm not like really buying into this track as like a great standalone single that I want to repeat again and again and again and again, unfortunately. Uh, cool vibe, interesting risk, a cool collection of names and influences coming together on this thing. Um, it's pleasant while it's on, but I'm not sure if I can say much else about it outside of that. I'm going to be taking on this latest new single from Earl Sweatshirt. Mr. Earl Sweatshirt, new album on the way very soon. The name of this one is The Mint, featuring Navy Blue. If you guys recall in a previous track review, I thought the last single Earl dropped from this forthcoming record, Nowhere to Go, was pretty cool, pretty psychedelic, a little mind-bending. Seemed like a personal message coming through in that track of feeling lost and needing to find one's self. This new cut over here seems a little longer, a little meatier. We have a feature in here. Who knows if the production is going to be equally as surreal. Let's give it a shot. Earl Sweatshirt, Navy Blue, The Mint. Uh, Ba-bam. Okay, man. (sighs) That's a heavy track. That is a heavy song. Um... Not only sonically, because the mix on this thing is so claustrophobic. Like, it's not a very aggressive song. It's not a very angry song, but just the compressed, the, the compressed loud saturation of the instrumental and the, uh, the saturation of the vocals, too. It's really just oppressive. It really just, like, kind of weighs down on you and pushes on you. Uh, I do wish the instrumental was a bit more varied because it, it doesn't really change up much, if at all. Uh, but the glistening, sharp, bright, piercing piano loop, if that is a piano loop, uh, and very downtrodden bass that sort of slinks in and out, uh, are pretty haunting and hypnotic and add to the 
that very heavy, surreal feel of the track overall. I wouldn't say it's as trippy or as oddly mixed as the last single that Earl dropped, but I don't think having kind of a uh, surreal, very cerebral moment is exactly the uh, intention of this track. I think the emotions and the uh, the, the place that this track is set in is, is much more uh, rooted in reality in that Earl is kind of like uh, suffering through this dejection, this extreme depression, uh, rapping about essentially the after effects of all of the substances he's abusing, rapping about uh, all of these things that are ailing him emotionally, which I think he kind of ties up at the refrain at the very end, saying that he has peace to make and a lot of blood to let, uh, fuck a check, so on and so forth. And that's essentially how this song feels. And I think uh, Navy Blue also kind of carries that same sentiment in his words as well, that essentially these are things that are bringing them extreme emotional trauma. Uh, and they're essentially just like kind of letting that blood out in this track. And uh, it may not sound very intense on the surface, but when you kind of dive into a lot of what they are talking about and rapping about in terms of like what's bothering them and the, uh, uh, the symptoms essentially of uh, these negative sort of uh, very negative uh, mental illnesses that I guess they're kind of working through uh, either mental illnesses or just uh I guess kind of processing, you know, whatever it is in life that's bothering them to the degree that it is. Um, it, it, again, it gets pretty heavy. It's kind of like, it, honestly, this track is, is kind of like walking into, you know, I'm not trying to say Earl is like a, a drug addict or anything like that. I mean, you know, he himself admits to, you know, uh, how much drugs he does in his songs, but I'm not going as far as to say that, you know, it's a clinical problem, but, um, this song listening to it, it's almost like stepping into somebody's like completely unkempt drug den. You know, it's like stepping into someone's area and you're just like, wow, what is wrong? You need help. You are totally falling apart. And I am incredibly concerned right now. And I'm just not really sure what to say beyond that. This is this track. I enjoyed it. It's intense. It's incredibly dark. Uh, it's despondent as hell, but I guess uh, simultaneously, I feel like a lot of that comes with a, a ton of concern too, um, because there is this, again, I'll use the word oppressive, oppressive darkness to this song, oppressive emotional darkness to this track that uh, uh, makes me attracted to the track, but simultaneously, um, you know, just like get certain parts of my head firing that uh, just make me worried, I guess, because, uh, uh, really the intensity of the negativity on this track is, is that strong. It's just emanating it. Um, and I, I guess I'll have to just leave it at that again, pretty intense track. And, uh, I guess, you know, it's, it's continuing to set the tone for this new record called some rap songs, which in a way kind of sends that same message. Like, Oh, I, I'm just like too out of it to even be bothered to give this album a <laughs> proper title. So I'm just going to call it some rap songs. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I really don't, I really don't know, man. I, it's, uh, it's, it's intense. It's dark. It's concerning. I know I've been saying that, but, uh, it, it, this really has kind of left an impact on me in 
away. And uh, and I think at the rate that Earl is kind of going on this track, the previous one, he could certainly surpass the darkness of I don't like shit. You know, it's uh, unfortunate to see Earl continue to tumble into this uh, abyss of sorts, but uh, hopefully it's not affecting his personal life or his creative process too much. Next, we are going to get into an exclusive little tidbit from a episode of Let's Argue that didn't make it into the final cut on the Fantano channel. If you guys are aware, Let's Argue is an awesome series that we do on youtube.com slash Fantano, where I take your hot takes, your unpopular opinions, your tough questions over the internet, and I respond to them on camera, but now this time, uh, uh, I guess, uh, uh, on the microphone, I suppose. Let's get into this extra Let's Argue clip, ba-bam! Underground bands like The Voids and Death Grips will probably never make it to the mainstream, which is sad because they're making innovative music. Well, I mean, I don't know if you could exactly call Death Grips totally irrelevant or super obscure at this point. I mean, the band has had so much insane stuff happen to them over the years in terms of exposure and internet virality, as well as their influence on other artists, some of which are actually mainstream. But, I mean, what are you gonna do? I mean, that's, that's just kind of the, the, the way the cookie crumbles when it comes to accessibility and uh, large audiences and mainstream culture. I mean, things get popular because they appeal to the lowest common denominator much of the time. Much of the time. Of course, there are tons of exceptions to that. Occasionally, some high art or some thoughtful stuff or some groundbreaking stuff does get through. But look, maybe there's a bit of an overemphasis on the necessity of mainstream popularity with this tweet because there are tons and tons and tons of mainstream artists over the years that have been completely forgotten in the dusty books of pop music history. Maybe their careers ended prematurely for some reason. Maybe they were just one-hit wonders. Maybe uh, their music only made sense within a certain cultural context. Meanwhile, there are tons of groups I could name you that never had a chart-topping hit while they were in their prime, but went on to influence loads of artists and make music history and essentially gain a cult following that loves them to this day. Velvet Underground, Joy Division, blah, 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 list goes on. And that is going to be it for this latest episode of the Needle Drop Podcast. Thank all of you for listening. Remember to hit us up on social media, twitter.com slash theneedledrop and Instagram, afantano. Theneedledrop.com is where you can find all of our videos, reviews, and more. Also, youtube.com slash theneedledrop, youtube.com slash fantano to keep up with everything and anything that we are doing. All of these reviews, all of these segments, and more. Shout out to Jonah, who pulls together this segment every week and make sure on iTunes or any platform that you are listening to this podcast on. If you can leave a rate, subscribe, maybe leave a review, share it with a friend, share it with a loved one. And uh, yeah, that's all. Thank you very much for listening and we will catch you in the next one. Anthony Fantano, the Needle Drop Podcast forever. Podcast.